0: Welcome to a podcast of a sermon delivered at the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood in New Jersey. Our congregation is a place where you will find inspiration in the richness of diverse beliefs and the power of community. Detailed information about the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood is available on our website, uuridgewood.org. And now, if you'll please join me in the words for lighting the chalice, they're printed in your order of service. We light this chalice. As we gather together in the circle of community. Now please take a deep breath. Be here in this moment. Still and quiet, aware of the cool morning air outside. Breathe deeply and slowly and let the sound echo in the space. Try to hear in this sound not just one note, but many layers, resonances that shift and change and invite you here, now. Breathe and listen. Welcome. As we enter this new month and winter persists in all its frigid glory, as we continue to bundle ourselves up in coats and sweaters that blur together in a visual sea of defense against the cold, we find strength in our connections that invite us to shed those outer layers and be our whole, flawed, real selves. We find warmth in our community that promises to walk with us through the coldest and darkest moments of our lives. We find joy in our diversity of identity and belief that encourages each of us to journey toward deeper self understanding. We find hope in our commitment that asks us to give of our hearts and minds and spirits so that this world might move ever more toward peace. We gather this morning finding strength, warmth, joy, and hope in being together. Every Sunday we take time in our service for reflection and meditation and prayer and silence, aware that in our diversity of belief we each use this time differently. So I'm going to ask you to take a deep breath after the rousing music and to come into this special time by preparing your body and mind and heart. So settle into your seat with your feet on the floor. Find a comfortable position for your arms, your hands. Breathe deeply and slowly. And as you do, relax your shoulders. Breathe deeply and slowly. And as you do, relax your jaw. If it feels comfortable, close your eyes and breathe. As we enter our time together, we acknowledge the passing of one among us. This past week, Diane Collins, a longtime member of this congregation, died. Our hearts are with her partner, Helmut, and all those who mourn her. we also acknowledging acknowledge the troubling news this week from the Methodist denomination which has chosen to institutionally exclude lgbtqia folks from their ranks our love goes to our siblings of all genders and sexualities who have been denied access to their faith communities in ways deeply personal and that play out on the national stage. Our diversity of living and being requires of us a deep and abiding, sacred love. It requires of us an openness, a kindness, a compassion, a welcoming heart. The vastness of human experience Calls on us to honor difference, embrace variety, and love possibility. As we come into silence in this room full of wonderful, beautiful, unique beings, beings that bring a range of human experience, pain, wonder, gratitude, fear, relief, joy, and so much more. As we sit together, we know deeply in our heart the expanse of all that is and all that can be. And we respond with love. Take a deep breath. So this coming Wednesday is a particular holy day in the Christian calendar. It's Ash Wednesday, While Christians of many denominations celebrate this holy day, millions of Catholics around the world will head to their local churches to attend mass and receive from their priest a mark of ashes on their foreheads in the shape of a cross. Ash Wednesday begins the season of Lent, the 40 days before Easter, that commemorate the 40 days that Jesus lived in the desert, fasting and preparing to live into his public ministry, the ministry that eventually led to his death. Out there, in the desert, he practiced abstinence, ostensibly to purify himself and fortify himself for the work that was to come. And to this day, many people use Lent as a time to practice abstinence in their own lives. They give up something they view as a vice, though perhaps people speak more commonly in terms of bad habits rather than vices. So perhaps you might give up chocolate or ice cream, or television, or complaining. (laughs) I remember as a young Unitarian Universalist thinking that it would be useful to try this Lenten practice of giving up something I wished I wasn't so attached to. And I'll be honest, I was not great at observing Lent. In retrospect, my inability to complete a 40-day Lenten practice of abstinence may well have been rooted in a fundamental lack of conviction about the practice in the first place, My view of vices and virtues and their relative value or necessity is distinctly un-Catholic, but I still tried. Then, when I was an intern minister down in Virginia, a congregant suggested that rather than removing a vice, one could honor the Lenten season by adding more virtues. This shifted the practice from abstinence to abundance, from sacrifice to cultivation, from the negative to the positive— Instead of giving up chocolate, add in working out. Instead of stopping complaining, add in a gratitude practice, and so on. I liked the idea very much. (laughs) And a few years ago, the Pope himself made a Lenten recommendation that echoed that congregant's vision of adding rather than subtracting. He said, rather than give up a vice... Rather than use Lent as a time to attempt to end a bad habit, use it as a time to cultivate virtue, and in the case of the Pope, he said specifically let go of indifference. Spend 40 days helping others in whatever way in order to cultivate a deep theological and lasting love of your neighbor. It's an interesting recasting of what it means to give something up, to sacrifice in a way that recalls the fasting and soul preparation of Jesus in the desert. Vices and virtues are not something that we talk about a lot in Unitarian Universalist circles. Perhaps because vices feel too close to sin to us liberal religious folk who tend to eschew the idea that we are sinful and fallen. And perhaps virtues seem too sanctimonious. But, and I think we would do well to remember this more often, sin, not original sin that stains our soul, but human error that destroys and harms that kind of sin, sin is very real. And the cultivation of compassion and kindness and openness and love is not sanctimonious. It's the heart of what we strive for. In traditional Catholicism, there are four cardinal virtues inherited from the Greek and three theological virtues. So the four cardinals are temperance, prudence, courage, and justice. And the three theological are faith, hope, and love. Those seven virtues contrast with the seven deadly sins, the product of which we might say are behaviors that are considered bad habits, vices. The sins are pride, envy, gluttony, lust, wrath, greed, and sloth. So all my chocolate eating would fall under gluttony, my napping under sloth, and so on. Each vice we have can find a home within the construct of these sins, And each positive behavioral trait or habit can be understood within those virtues. In traditional Catholic and Christian circles, those sins are what earn you a seat in hell, though of course repentance is possible. And one is encouraged to live the virtues as much as possible and avoid the sins as much as possible. And the reality is, and I'm pretty sure we all know this, very few people in the world are actually capable of excising vice from their lives entirely and leaning only into virtuous behavior and i'll be honest i'm not actually sure that encouraging that is productive in fact the encouragement to utter purity can often lead to the sin or the vice coming out sideways in forms that are even more damaging more harmful to others more dangerous to ourselves I'm not alone in thinking that in some ways vices are necessary not to be removed completely but understood for their particular power and moderated to a place of non-harm. A reading this morning from David White explores the idea of the shadow. This concept traces also to Jung and understandings of the operation of the mind in relation to positive and negative behaviors and attitudes. The Japanese novelist Haruki Murakami wrote this in his work Ichikyu Hachiyon. He wrote, Where there is light, there must be shadow, and where there is shadow, there must be light. There's no shadow without light and no light without shadow. Carl Jung said this about the shadow in one of his books, It is as evil as we are positive. The more desperately we try to be good and wonderful and perfect, the more the shadow develops a definite will to be black and evil and destructive. The fact is that if one tries beyond one's capacity to be perfect, the shadow descends to hell and becomes the devil. For it is just as sinful from the standpoint of nature and of truth to be above oneself as to be below oneself. David White is saying something similar in the passage we read. He elegantly extends this metaphor of the shadow by reminding us of something we are perfectly aware of. Shadows can only be created by a physical presence and no physical presence exists without a shadow. For an entity to produce no shadow would mean it was transparent. Shadow, he writes, is necessary consequence of being in a sunlit, visible world. White is expressing in the poetic metaphoric language he uses so well this Jungian notion that our shadow is necessary, part of who we are, an indicator of the full integration, or lack of full integration, of our humanness. To attempt to avoid our physical, and by extension, our behavioral or psychological shadow, he writes, is to attempt to be the exception to humanity. To try to escape the consequences of being a real, physical being in the world. Jung, Murakami, and White are all writing of shadow as the dark side of us. The side of us that Catholicism would identify as our sinning self. It's the side of us that indulges in our vices and perpetuates our less virtuous behaviors. Our shadows are the part of us that give in to greed or meanness that we experience as weak-willed or hedonistic, but our shadows are also unavoidable. We can't erase them. The more we try to run and hide from them, the more they expand, the more they take over, the more they remind us that perfection is impossible with us. When shadow or vices are presented as unequivocally evil to be avoided at all costs in any amount, they take on a power that is outsized to what they actually are. When we fear them is when they actually become the uncontrollable monster of historic Christian imagination. White frames it interestingly at the end when he says shadow is not good or bad, only inescapable. It has to be acknowledged, owned, integrated as an inescapable part of being human but a part that can be contained within our full personhood by achieving a greater abundance of cultivated virtue. The Lenten practice of sacrifice, of abstinence, may not actually be the right path, but the cultivation of positive virtues that build a sense of centeredness, of calm, of worth, virtues that, as David Brooks puts it, are eulogy virtues, The cultivation of these things can help us to integrate the vices and shadows to live those in moderation rather than excess, because our focus and attention and care is being given to the behaviors and beliefs that make us better. In his 2015 piece for the Times, distilled from his book The Road to Character, David Brooks outlines some of the ways that we might cultivate the interior strength the virtues, the moral center to become like the people he described in that first reading. Not people without fault or vice, but people whose eulogy virtues are strong enough that you can perceive in them a goodness. People who make you feel cared for. People who brighten your day. What Brooks discovered is he explored what makes people like this is that wonderful people are made, not born. And he writes, the people he admired had achieved an unfakeable inner virtue built slowly from specific moral and spiritual accomplishments. Their journey on the path to lives of inner light and virtue was not random, but rather the product of moral experiences or actions that result in what Brooks calls the richest possible inner life. In this distilled version, Brooks lists some of these moral bucket list items. First, the humility shift which means turning away from the self-focused agenda of the culture in which we live. We perpetuate a myth here in America that we are a meritocracy, and there's a self-promotion that has come as a result of that that is striking. The desire to only show the best side, to only Instagram the most perfect picture. The humility shift is about confronting our own weaknesses and failures and understanding deeply what makes us feel shame and guilt. Brooks writes that folks who have made this shift have quote identified their core sin whether it's selfishness the desperate need for approval cowardice hard-heartedness or whatever they have achieved a profound humility which has best been defined as an intense self-awareness from a position of other centeredness. The second moral practice he identifies as self-defeat, and it's corollary to this humility shift because it's the confrontation of those weaknesses. It's the work of taking that weakness and refusing to give into it, and instead cultivating the opposite of that weakness. It's developing strength from a place of flaw. And then not unrelated to the whole question of the self-centered I'm special meritocracy that the humility shift works against, is Brooks' third moral practice, the leap into dependency. It's the move that says, I'm not an island. I need others. I need help in becoming my best self. He writes, people on the road to character understand that no person can achieve self-mastery on his or her own. Individual will, reason, and compassion are not strong enough to consistently defeat selfishness, pride, and self-deception, he says. We all need redemptive assistance from outside. People on this road see life as a process of commitment-making. He goes on from there to say that connections and roots that hold us and push us are instrumental in making the most of these moves from self-focus into humility, from weakness into self-confronted strength, from individualism into community and commitment. The final two practices that he lists in this brief article speak to the capacity of love to alter lives. Energizing love, Brooks writes, is a special kind of love that calls us to decenter ourselves and center someone else or something else. He writes that it reminds you that your true riches are in another. This love puts you in a state of need and makes it delightful to serve what you love. I would call that the kind of soul-stirring love that overwhelms any selfishness or self-centeredness. And then finally, the leap into conscience. And that happens, he says, when something, maybe it's that energizing love, calls us to move past society's expectations or requirements of us and into a choice that is beholden to some larger, deeper sense of what is right. It goes beyond religious moralizing, beyond cultural notions of right and wrong, and into the deep call of our internal sense of what our lives are meant to be. This partial list out of Brooks' book cuts straight at the heart of American exceptionalism and individualism and selfishness, and I would venture to say that it cuts at the heart of what is worst in Unitarian Universalism. The individualism that we can lean too hard into, the self-righteousness or hubris that we can fall into when we look around and think of ourselves always on the cutting edge of morality and virtue. But these notions of moral improvement also cut, I think we can argue, to the heart of why the Lenten practice of penitential abstinence isn't maybe as productive as it might appear at first blush. Jesus's time in the desert wasn't about reforming himself, wasn't about becoming a more virtuous being or excising his vices, certainly not so he could brag about it on social media. His time in the desert was about preparing himself for what is, in the Christian tradition, the ultimate act of selflessness and community care and connection building. The equivalent for us contemporary humans isn't to stop eating chocolate or to give up Facebook, It's to turn toward humility, awareness of our limitations, commitment to interdependence, to turn toward life-altering love and to the call of conscience that is so much deeper and more real than the expectations that follow us. The equivalent act to 40 days in the desert is 40 days of cultivating moral groundedness and clarity of purpose, 40 days of exercising our virtues not to eliminate our shadows but to integrate them into our full and flawed humanity. Because that last point is where our Unitarian Universalism differs so radically from many other traditions. It is in our full humanity, with all our differences and varied strengths and weaknesses, flawed and struggling, that we find beauty and wholeness and realness and truth in and among each other. Brooks ends his Times piece by explaining how the lives of these most good people are characterized, and it's a characterization that resonates strongly with my Unitarian Universalist understanding of our humanity. He writes, their lives often follow a pattern of defeat, recognition, redemption. They have moments of pain and suffering, but they turn those moments into occasions of radical self-understanding. They see life as a moral drama and feel fulfilled only when they are enmeshed in a struggle on behalf of some ideal. This is a philosophy for stumblers. The stumbler doesn't build her life by being better than others, but by being better than she used to be. Those are the people we want to be, Brooks writes. The people for whom life, with all its ups and downs, is understood as a journey to a deeper and more real sense of self, that transcends selfishness and self-centeredness. The people who grasp that perfection is impossible, that our shadows are ours and cannot be erased, and who understand that opportunity still exists always to increase our goodness, our virtue, our commitment to the community and to the world. The people who work to cultivate not resume virtues, but eulogy virtues. So whatever your feelings about Jesus or Christianity or the Lenten season, I invite you to start a process of owning your own shadow, your vices and sins, so that you can begin to be free of their hold, a process of cultivating the virtues of community and connection and love and interdependence. Consider seeking out or creating an opportunity in your life to encounter a moral bucket list item. Make time and space to reflect on this, to observe your shadow in the sunlight, To think about how your life might change if you engaged in a humility shift, or confronted your weakness, or embraced an energizing love. The process will look different for each of us as we navigate a deepening understanding of our individual strengths and weaknesses and confront them. It will look different for each of us as we uncover what it means to reach out in our families and our communities. It will look different for each of us as we open ourselves up to life-altering love. But what will be the same is that we will be honoring our capacity for growth and change even as we honor the truth of our human experience on, as White puts it, the frontier between light and dark. May these next weeks bring you opportunities to know yourself, to increase your goodness, to cultivate your virtues, and to stumble on the way. So may it be. Please remain standing and join in the words for Extinguishing the Chalice. We extinguish this flame, but may the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the energy of action burn bright in our hearts until we are together again. We need not be party to a culture of selfishness. We can instead embrace connection, community, diversity, and commitment as we find strength, warmth, joy, and hope in all our humanness together. May it be so. Go in peace.